enemy, right, took a grenade and threw it inside one of the homes that they were escaping out into a room with had women and children. And uh, so it blew up. And now I had about six more casualties, including kids uh, and women. And so they brought them back uh, to the forward operating base. And now I'm not running between four patients. I'm running between eight patients. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Dr. James Zarnick to War Docs. Jim is a colonel in the United States Army and for more than 30 years has served as a soldier, officer, physician, and commander in special operations in both Afghanistan and Iraq. He received his medical degree at the Uniformed Services, University of the Health Sciences, and completed his emergency medicine residency training at Brook Army Medical Center. Dr. Zarnick is a recognized leader in military pre-hospital care, and serves on the Health Affairs Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. He is currently the Deputy Chief of Staff and Command Surgeon of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. Physicians are not defined by medicine. They're informed by medicine. And from my standpoint, I'm not defined by being a ranger or a parachutist or a diver. I'm informed by all those when you start listening to these stories, don't have an image in your mind of a guy in a uniform with a stethoscope around there. Now, think about just your neighbor who may be out mowing their lawn, who then one day went and did something different, because we are all just people. And so I think that's kind of a framework that's worth starting about. Well, welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have Colonel Dr. Jim Zarnick on. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's it's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Zarnick, tell us what led you to have a career in Army medicine. Quite simply, I remember very early in school thinking about becoming a physician. I had an English class in about eighth grade that said, write about an occupation you might think you'd like. And I thought the idea of a physician appealed to me. More importantly, I have a very much of a philosophical kind of bent as I look at the world. And early in life, I heard the saying that freedom is not paid in one lump sum, but from the blood of every generation. And that stuck with me and said, I said, okay, that means someone's got to pay that. Someone's got to be willing to go do that. And I said, why not me? Uh, and then I really said, no, it should be me. And so I, the sense of service came early, the sense of military my father was in the National Guard, but he never pushed it. And I said, uh, you know, initially, look, I'm going to join ROTC and then be an infantry officer for a few years and then apply for medical school. And then we'll go from there. But that's what kind of led to uh, Army medicine was a sense of service. And, and so it's not it becomes service to people and then service to nation. So, hey. What a great way to combine the two. So you're a parachutist, a diver, a ranger. Did you do that stuff before you went to medical school or after you had trained in emergency medicine? I did all of those things after medical school. I went through ROTC thinking that I was going to be an infantry officer. In my junior year of college, uh, as a litmus test, I applied to one medical school, and that was the Uniformed Services University, and lo and behold, I got in. So 
I asked my dad and my two brothers at the time who were both in the guard and both, all three started out as enlisted members and then went through OCS. I said, Hey, should I, I got into this medical school and I really wanted to be an infantry officer. Should I wave off on the medical school now and be an infantry officer for two or three years and then go back to medical school? And after they got done beating me about the head and shoulders for asking such a stupid question, they said, no, Jim, of course, you go to medical school right away. So I went to medical school, but in the back of my mind, there was a part of a guy who wanted to be in the field. So I did all those things after medical school. I did my internship in Hawaii, and then I requested at actually early in medical school to go to the 1st Ranger Battalion to be a general medical officer. And this was a time in the Army when physicians would finish internship and then spend two or three years at a, at a unit level providing basic medical care. And so that's how I spent those. Uh, that's how I, when I went to, uh, I went to airborne school during the Uniformed Services University. I went to Ranger School while I was at the 1st Ranger Battalion. I did my emergency medicine residency and then uh, started my career in both emergency medicine and physicians world. And I just continued to go to schools as a requirement for the job. I wasn't badge finding. It was, okay, what does the job require? And so that's where all those things occurred over the course of time. Where did you first have your assignment when you finished your emergency medicine training? And did you feel prepared for that job? So my first assignment uh, was at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Interestingly enough, everybody who was in my graduating class said, Jim, why did you ask to go to Fort Bragg? You know, people deploy. And uh, this was in the year 2000. And I said, yeah, isn't that the point? We're in the Army. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? So uh, I, I started my emergency medicine program or uh, work at Fort Bragg. And my first month there, I did 24 12-hour night shifts. And uh, I felt very well prepared in terms of medicine. What I was not as good pre- as prepared for was having to transfer patients out of the hospital because we didn't have all the aspects of care as we had in the large tertiary center that I had trained in. So if you can't do... Uh, uh, if you can't take care, take care of acute MIs with angioplasty and you can't squirt them or you don't have a thoracic surgeon on call to squirt them, well, you got to transfer them out. And so that was the one area where I didn't feel as prepared for. But from a medical standpoint and taking care of the patient in front of me, I felt very, very prepared. So that experience you had where you were a general medical officer with the Ranger Battalion, do you have any particular stories that could describe a little bit of that experience so that we could understand what it's like to be in that position? Sure. Please give me just a, uh, a second to think so that the average person could understand. Imagine going to be part of a motorcycle game and riding up on your 10-speed bike. And it doesn't matter that you that you are really big and in shape. You haven't ridden 500 miles with them. You haven't gone sleepless nights with them. You, you haven't gotten motorcycle wrecks with them. And so it's immediately this sense of, well, who's that? And so you feel a very strong sense of you're the odd guy out and you've got to prove yourself. And 
at the first ranger battalion trust me there's a lot of smart people in the special operations world and who are in there are a lot of smart people and they're very hard people and so it didn't matter that i had gone to medical school and that i was a physician that almost in some ways was held to get held against me because interestingly enough at the time when i went to the first ranger battalion i was one of the highest paid guys in the battalion the day that i got there because i got my uh, bonus from being a physician. The thing that hurt me was that I was not Ranger qualified. Remember, this is in 1995, and there's no war going on. And so when I got there, I felt like I had to prove myself in their eyes. And that was okay, because I was in good shape. And they didn't need me to prove myself from a medicine standpoint. They expected me to be a good physician. They wanted to see if I could hang with them. And so my first six months there was... Every time we would go on a run, every time that we would do a jump, every time we would do a road march, I, I was working very hard and I made sure I was never last and routinely in the front of the pack. And so it was more of a, a demonstration of will. So it, it wasn't a battle of wits. It was more of a battle of will, if you will. And then very rapidly, what what they saw was somebody who just happened to be a physician and someone who really wanted to be there. And after that was done, and after I was taking care of them and I would do house calls there as well because the battalion is really close, you very rapidly became their doc. That, that's our battalion doc. And they would work you hard and they would defend you nonstop. They would support you in whatever you wanted to do because you were one of them. And so it was actually a really, really worthwhile event for me, because up to that point, I had been very successful and had not had a lot of significant challenges. But I walked into an environment where everybody else had gone through basic training and then their advanced individual training. And the vast majority had already been through ranger school and some you know, many had already been platoon sergeants or, or platoon leaders, et cetera. So it, it, what it took was about three to six months of demonstrating through your action that it wasn't about just being a good doc. It, it was that you wanted to be there. And quite frankly, this is where I came up with kind of one of my gymisms where I said, look, are you an owner or are you a renter? And they wanted to see, look, are you just here passing through because you could say that you hung out with them? Or did you really want to be one of us? And and that's kind of what that experience was like. Once they embraced you, there was no greater feeling of family uh, than than that right there. Tell us a little bit about your first deployment as a ER physician. Okay, uh, my first deployment uh, as an ER physician. I got to Fort Bragg in 2000 in August of 2000, and then. I was uh, working with a special operations medical unit that took care of some of our elite special forces personnel. And we trained to jump into harm's way. We trained to be very, very light, trained to do damage control surgery with a very small team of five person in, in every different environment. And so we trained very hard for that because that was the environment that this particular unit mission was centered around. So interestingly enough, my first deployment, uh, 9-11 happened. I was working in the emergency department at Fort Bragg and I, uh, you know, you got everybody remembers where they were during 9 uh, And I remember I was one of two docs running a busy uh, department and I kept trying to keep everybody's focus on the department. So that happened and 
a day or two later, my pager went off and I said, hey, sorry, I got to go. I went to the unit and they said, hey, Packers, because we're leaving. And that was the first, that was the first shorty, if you will, back in 2011, uh, October when we left, really late September. And so we, we flew to a, uh, a forward operating base and we then started doing rehearsals and set up for the initial push into Afghanistan. So again, think back in 2001. Remember the, the night vision goggle video that saw of Rangers jumping out of airplanes doing the first push into Afghanistan. I, I was one of those 200 guys. And the interesting story behind that was there was a conventional Air Force medical unit that was set up at our forward operating base to res- help receive casualties. And my medical folks were going to go forward. And because that Air Force medical team came out of Wilford Hall, and I had done my residency training at both Brookcoming Medical Center and Wilford Hall, I knew all the Air Force trauma surgeons and nurses and everybody very well. So I got tasked with, hey, Jim, since you know uh, everybody from Wilford Hall, we want you to stay behind and set conditions to receive casualties that are going to come back. And externally, I said, Roger, sure. Internally, I said, mother jumper, right? Um, uh, you know, I had been, I had gone to the Ranger Battalion, worked very hard. Even after I left there, every time I did a jump, it was uh, combat equipment, night jump. Uh, it was never Hollywood. And so I said, okay, but that's okay. That's what the nation needs. That's what the mission needs. Happy to do that. And 24 hours before the jump happened, the battalion surgeon at the third range of battalions. So remember, I had been a battalion surgeon at the first range of battalion about four years before that. The battalion surgeon at the third range of battalion who was jumping in, a gentleman by the name of Russ Cotwell, made a request really back to the Army and really to the Special Operations Committee. And they said, look, we're looking, they wanted to augment their casualty collection point when they jumped in. And they said, what we need is a emergency medicine physician who is still current doing combat equipment night jumps and who knows how rangers do airfield seizures. I think at the time there was an N of one of those in the army, which was me. And as I was setting up with the, with the Wilford Hall folks, the HHC, uh, the company first sergeant for the third battalion, the headquarters company came to me and said, Hey, sir, what's your standard name line? And I gave it to him and I said, first sergeant, why? He said, well, obviously for the manifest. And then I was like, holy cow, I'm, I'm going to jump in with the Rangers, which is what I've been trained for. So suffice to say, we did all our rig up talk and we had a uh, briefs and rehearsals, et cetera. And the interesting part about that rehearsal and then the long, long, long flight we did to infill into Afghanistan is if you do your training right, the real thing feels just like the train. So I remember flying into Afghanistan in the back of a C-130. It's all blocked out. And I felt and it looked exactly like the dozens and dozens of training missions and jumps we did. And why did it look and feel like that way? Because we always did combat equipment night jumps. So everybody was rigged up the same way at night. The center of the aircraft was completely dark. More importantly, my ass really hurt for sitting for hours on the metal floor like it did every other mission. I had to piss so bad you couldn't believe it, right? Just like we always did on every mission. Guys were moving their boots and crushing your knuckles on the floor. You kept them up going, oh, damn it just like you did on every training one in the past. And so just like every other mission, by the time it came to jump, you were just like, get me the hell out of this aircraft. So 
we we went through our normal calls. Uh, I knew it was going to be a little bit different because unlike our normal uh, air calls, at 10 minutes out, we all recited the Ranger Creed. When they uh, opened the, the aircraft door, we got a big burst of sand coming in because we were flying at a low level. At the uh, 30-second mark, as we're coming up to our drop point on the drop zone, I was the second jumper on my side, and uh, we saw the flare countermeasures on the aircraft fire off. And all you see is from the inside is everything's pitch black because we're jumping when there's zero illumination. The flares go off and light up the whole inside and totally take out your your night vision. And you you think to yourself, well, that's not normal. That didn't happen on training. There's plenty of detail to talk about it. Suffice to say, it was, there's 0% illumination. I exited the aircraft. I got a good canopy for a brief second. I saw the jumper uh, behind me and then I lost vision. And then for a brief moment, I, I saw the three burning objectives that got hit with the preparatory fires before we jumped. And then there was nothing. It was pitch black. And so I kept looking for the sense of, okay, where are the treetops? Where's the horizon? When do I know to pull my equipment to get ready to do a parachute landfall? Because you train and you use kind of the visual landmarks, but you also kind of learn just by feel. And I couldn't tell where the ground was. I couldn't see any trees. I was just dropping in blackness, but I knew I had a good canopy. And this is where that training, where you do it over and over and over again, where at one point I just said, I've been falling too long. And I released my equipment, so it went down and uh, dropped below me on the lowering line. I pulled my slip to prepare for a PLF. And... A millisecond after I pulled my slip and got my feet and knees together, bam, uh, I hit the ground. And it was like uh, hitting concrete with about an inch of talcum powder over the top of it. And that was my introduction to Afghanistan. The rest of the mission went on, and we exfilled appropriately, and then we got back home. And uh, you're just kind of stuck with this sense of they happened. We really did that. There's more to the story, but suffice to say that that was the first deployment was doing the initial jump. And there were some more operations after that. The point of that story was to understand that most people think in times of duress, you'll have a spiritual rise to the occasion. And in fact, that's false. What really happens is you fall to your level of training. And the goal is that your level of training is high enough so when that time of duress comes around, that there, the fall is imperceptible or none at all, so that you can just keep going. And that's exactly what happened on that first parachute. You train to a very high level. And it was simply because of the level of training, the familiarity with the environment, and with your equipment and falling, that I was able to make a safe parachute landing fall and then complete the mission. And there are some aspects of it that is somewhat like Pavlovian. Some surgeons would say, look, I learned how to tie knots and I don't even think about doing that anymore. Some people will read a chest x-ray and they do it in the same way every time. Depending on whatever our job is, you do it over and over again so it just becomes second nature. That's the, that's the exact same uh, applicability into the military. The difference is we routinely prepare for the worst and so that means you have to train for the worst. Tell us about what you would consider your most memorable clinical case of a patient you treated on the battlefield during an deployment. It's actually a number of casualties, and there's also a very interesting story here as well. So uh, I, I'm going to put two together here because you can't just do one without the other. So 
in 2005, uh, I was assigned to the third special forces group as a group surgeon. And I would go out with the uh, sergeant major and the commander once a week to one of the forward operating bases. We'd take a look at the defensive plan for the forward operating base, get a brief from the ODA commander, the 12-man special forces team commander, and it would give me an opportunity to talk with the the special forces medics, see if they had any needs. Uh, And then also my commander, my sergeant major at that time knew that among other things, I just happened to be an emergency medicine physician, but they knew I knew how to handle myself with weapons and radios and those kind of things. So every time we would go out to a forward operating base, the colonel, the commander of the special forces group would say to the captain, who is the detachment commander at that base, if anything happens here, you're in charge tactically. We're just guys here that are here to support, but this is your base. And that was always clear that this particular uh, camp, ODA detachment commander said, you know, Sergeant Major, I'd like you to get on this heavy weapon. Colonel, I'd like you to get on this heavy weapon. And when he came to me, he said, hey, Doc, Jim, what I need you to do is go in the aid station if we start taking fire. And my first thought was, God, you know, I, I trained all this time. I can get on a gun. I can lob mortars. But I, I didn't say any of that. In my mind, I was thinking, Jim, you know, uh, it just do the mission. And he said, and the reason I need you to do that is my 18 Delta, the special forces medic, before he was an 18 Delta for 12 years, he was a 18 Bravo special forces weapons sergeant. And he said, quite frankly, we have more crew serve weapons than crews to serve them. So if I can use him to work as a weapons sergeant, because you're in the aid station, that will really help. I said, okay, that's fine. No problem. Now, remember, we had been out every week before this and we routinely got rocketed and mortared. I mean, it was just, you could just expect it to happen every night. And you knew how to go to your bunker and you knew how to get your Kevlar on. And you knew that the first one, you never really knew it was going to land. And then you just responded to it. So this particular night, we get done with the day, getting toward dusk. Uh, we're all starting to take off our boots. We're thinking, okay, we're going to get in for the evening. And uh, we start taking off our body armor, our LBE, et cetera. And uh, all of a sudden you're... <laughs> And you feel kind of this, this not only the sound, but you kind of feel the reverberations, the explosions going on. And of course, the, the, the group commander, you know, yells incoming and we all start throwing on all of our gear back again. And then we all start heading out to our positions. So, um, the rockets are landing and the mortars are landing. And as I'm going out, I'm thinking, okay, you know what? I know he said go to the aid state. However, I know how to get on a gun. I've been trained to do this. I'll get on a gun until someone gets hurt, and then I'll go to the aid station. So for a split second, I kind of turn to the left a little bit and go to a gun, and then I go, Jim, do what the commander asked you to do. So I then turned and went toward the aid station. Now, mind you, there are rockets and mortars going off. Not danger close, right? I'm not getting hit by shrapnel, but they, I'm absolutely feeling the, the pressure of them. And I'm seeing the light flare at night close by and it's, it's dramatic. <laughs> uh, and so I said, you know what? The mortar pit is right, uh, above the aid station because the aid station was kind of dug into the ground. So I said, I'm going to go to the mortar pit with the mortar crew and help them start lobbing rounds in response uh, so that we could send up uh, illumination rounds so we could see where they were and then drop high explosive rounds on the enemy. 
Now, by this time, the rockets and the mortars keep coming, and now there's machine gun fire that is starting to take the wire, uh, go against the wire and the defenses. So I start heading toward the mortar pit, and I just, I just said, Jim, what did he tell you? And it's just interesting how you have those moments. And, and to, I, I tell this to other soldiers and, and people that will listen. At that time, I'm not sure if it was fear or training or a combination of the two. However, what I said to myself was the commander said, go to the aid station. And I remember saying, Jim, it's not about you. It's about the mission. And so instead of going up on top into the mortar pit, I turned and went down in the aid station. Not three minutes later, the enemy had walked out rockets right down the mountainside, right into the mortar pit. And so now I got four casualties off the mortar pit that I had to take care of. And had I not remembered it's not about you, it's about the mission, I would have been one of them. And then nobody would have been there to take care of these guys, which turned out to be for about the next uh, 18 hours. And so, look, I, I had guys with close head injuries. I had guys with multiple shrapnel wounds and, and uh, penetrating to the abdomen and I'm in a position at night where it's it's only me and sometimes one other person that shows up to help. And what you're doing is just those things you can do to, to keep somebody alive or to preserve limb length or prevent infections, right? So I remember one guy had a terrible open knee, and I just remember talking with my orthopedic lads before we left and part of our training and said, look, just, just pass fluid through there. Get rid of the gross contamination, right? And... Uh, as more volume that you can pass through there, the better. So I, I remember giving this guy a fentanyl lozenge and then start putting saline through his open knee wound. And he didn't particularly like it. However, he, he actually, you know, really responded well. I, I remember another guy that had just a number of different penetrating traumas and he was, he was not unstable. However, his belly was getting more firm. And so I remember just lining him up, but not giving him a lot of fluid. Uh, giving him a little bit of pain control and antibiotics, you know, checking urine outputs. And really what you found myself doing is going, you know, from one patient to each one, just one after another. And time really has a sense of, of just kind of slowing down, right? Or, or just all focusing together. Uh, the, the fight went on. Uh, we finally got air cover, both helicopters, uh, jets, uh, doing uh, gun runs and bombing runs. The enemy pushed off back into the uh, village because they, they actually tried to charge the wire. And I heard this because I didn't see it. I was in the aid station. And in fact, what happened was uh, our, the special forces detachment chased the enemy that was running away and chased them down into the town that was at the kind of near in this valley. And it was only about five or six meters away from the camp, but it was still far enough away that it was, you know, you're, you're, you're in greater harm's way. And what ended up happening then was the enemy, right, took a grenade and threw it inside one of the homes that they were escaping out into a room with had women and children. And uh, so it blew up. And now I had about six more casualties, including kids uh, and women. And so they brought them back uh, to the forward operating base. And now I'm not running between four patients. I'm running between eight patients. And thankfully, nobody, none of them died. I was given volume. I was given pain control. Uh, I was routinely monitoring SATs. You know, guys had penetrating trauma to the chest. And however, I... I was regularly making those decisions. Do I needle this guy? No. 
Do I put a chest tube in this guy? No. How firm is this guy's belly? Uh, do I really have to put a Foley in him, right? Or can they pee on their own? And I can. And then what happened was the helicopters finally landed and the 47 landed to take these guys out. And then for the two hour flight back on the back of the 47, while all my buds who are in the, the special forces detachment are sleeping going, wow, that was wild. I'm running from guy to person to person on the aircraft again. We got them back to the, to the base camp and thankfully, ultimately all of them survived. And the guy with the firm belly just had, you know, he had multiple enterotomies, ruptured spleen, damage to his liver. Uh, a round that went up through his abdomen, uh, through his diaphragm, up into his left chest cavity. And you really got a sense of how, um, how resilient can be even with significant injuries. Okay, what is the importance of that whole story? One is I was well trained. More importantly, I solidified the concept in my mind, which is really important about service, military service. It's not about you. You absolutely have to check your ego at the door. Because if you don't, you put the other members and the mission at risk. And in that particular moment, I had a struggle with my ego. Because the ranger part of Jim wanted to go on a gun. The physician part of me said I should be in the aid station. And ultimately what happened was the soldier who was Jim said, follow the commander's orders and go to the aid station. And that was a memory that will will stick with me to my end of my days and carried a very, very valuable lesson and story with me and the concept of it's not about you on through the rest of my military career for the next 17 years. We hope you've enjoyed listening to part one of our interview with Colonel Dr. Jim Zarnick. For additional great stories from his combat experiences and insights into delivering medical care in the most austere locations on the planet, we invite you to download and listen to part two of this episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.